Good morning, everyone. We're in our second week of a short preaching series on racial reconciliation in the gospel. Last week we saw that racial reconciliation is not just a topic for today. It's not just a liberal issue or a conservative issue. It's a biblical issue. Because racial prejudice was a problem that plagued the early church, and racial reconciliation was actually a key part of spreading the gospel and the growth of the church. We saw in Acts chapter 2 that the first act of the church in Jerusalem was to go cross-cultural. Scripture named 15 different ethnic groups that were part of the initial launch of the church. We also looked at the prayer where Jesus taught his disciples to pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because that kingdom vision includes a description of heavenly worship. We saw in Revelation 7 where a great multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language stood before the throne and before the Lamb. The church was created for this. It was to be a reconciling community. Reconciling people to God, but also reconciling people to each other under the banner of Jesus Christ. So the church should lead by example in being a reconciling community. That's what we are created to be. Reconciliation actually gives credibility to the gospel. But the reality is the church is better known as a segregated community because Christians in America of all colors don't seem to live out Jesus' kingdom perspective. A perspective from the kingdom forces us to open our eyes and see things as Jesus sees, to open our hearts to love as Jesus loves, to open our minds and to think biblically about our world. We've got to start a conversation about racism in the church and the frequent disconnect between what is professed on Sunday and then what is lived out on Monday through Saturday. We need to remember that reconciliation is not an end in and of itself. As Pastor Tony Evans writes, reconciliation is a means toward the greater end of bringing glory to God through seeking to advance his kingdom in a lost world. That's why we need reconciliation. So think with me for a moment about one of the events that ignited the recent conundrum about race. Ferguson, Missouri. For years to come, two different stories will be told about what happened on August 9th, 2014. Two different narratives about what took place between an encounter with a police officer and a young man. One story will tell of a black teenager who, while trying to surrender, was shot and killed by a trigger-happy white cop. And the community rose up in civil disobedience against a racist system that oppresses minorities and devalues the lives of young black men. The other story will tell of a young man who stood six foot five and weighed 289 pounds, the size of an NFL lineman, who had just committed a strong arm robbery at a convenience store. And when stopped for walking down the middle of a busy street, he punched a police officer in the face through the open window of his police cruiser, reached for the officer's gun, and the ensuing fight spilled out of the police car onto the street. And fearing for his life, the police officer shot and killed his attacker. The riots, well, they were caused by hoodlums and agitators just looking for an excuse to loot and burn local businesses. Two very different descriptions of the same event. A wide disparity about what happened on that night. Now, where would you place yourself on that continuum between believing this was an act of cold-blooded murder by a racist white police officer or believing it was the, an act of justified self-defense? Where would you place yourself on that continuum? Where would you see yourself there? Because where you place yourself on that continuum between racist act and justifiable self-defense actually tells us more about you than what really happened on that August day. 
because none of us were there, right? I mean, none of us were there. I don't think we have any eyewitnesses here. So we have all formed our opinions about what happened based on second and third and fourth hand information. We listened to the news, we saw interviews, we read articles, we watched videos, we heard stories. And then we unconsciously assign levels of credibility to all those various sources of information. Do we think this news channel is reliable in its reporting? Do we trust these witnesses or are they skewing their testimony because of an agenda? Do we believe some reports but we don't believe others based on our past experiences? About our beliefs about police officers, about racism, about the behavior of young black men, and a whole host of other beliefs. And we dismiss information that doesn't fit our view. In other words, we all have bias. Even before the first news broadcast, we already have a predisposition to believe or disbelieve what we hear and see based on our internal world, our bias. Every person carries bias. Black, white, Asian, Latino, it doesn't matter who you are. It's unavoidable. We all carry a certain level of bias into every experience and every relationship. No matter how objective we think we are, the only window we have out to that, onto the world out there is from our world inside our heads. So everything we see and do is evaluated by our inner bias. That's what we call the myth of objectivity, that someone can somehow separate their own life experience and history from how they evaluate what's going on in the world around them. Folks, we all have some level of implicit bias. We all do. And that's the beginning of racism, these automatic, unconscious things that come up when, when you react in a certain way. It's, it's one thing to talk about racism and reconciliation kind of on the macro, the big picture level for our nations and, our, you know, big groups. It's another thing to talk about it on a micro level, the small picture, down to the individual, down to me and to you and what's going on in our internal world and our bias. I believe Jesus wants us to look at our bias and begin to confront it because that's what Jesus did all the time. Jesus constantly confronted misguided perceptions. Not always about racism, but yes, sometimes about racism. So we're going to see in just a moment how Jesus confronted racial bias because it not only separates people from each other, it also separates people from a living relationship with God. Let me read just a portion of the story recorded for us in the Gospel of John chapter 4 where Jesus encounters a racial problem with a woman. You may be familiar with this story, but I'll bet you've never looked at it from the perspective of Jesus confronting racial bias. John 4, starting with verse 1. Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So when he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph, Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew. And I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? And then John adds this uh, little editorial comment. He says, for the Jews do not associate with the Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. 
Let's look back on just a little bit of history that we can understand here. In the year 722 B.C., Assyria invaded Israel, conquered it, and the victorious Assyrians took many Jews back to the nation of Assyria as captives and then transplanted Assyrians back into Israel. Over the decades, the Jews who had remained behind in Israel began to intermarry with these incoming foreigners. This new, these were interracial marriages, and so they created a kind of a new group called the Samaritans. And so when the descendants of the exiled Jews uh, returned to Israel under Ezra and Nehemiah, the Samaritans offered to help rebuild the temple because they still worshiped the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The, the Jews, though, refused their help. The Jews despised the Samaritans, saw them as traitors and half-breeds, unclean, rejected by God. They wouldn't have anything to do with the Samaritans. And that snub, that rejection began a centuries-long feud between the Jews and the Samaritans that continued to Jesus' day. The Jews and the Samaritans even fought a war against each other in 129 B.C. And the Jews were still bitter that some Samaritans had desecrated the Jewish temple by scattering animal bones inside. There was a bitter, intense hatred that went both ways between Jews and Samaritans. They avoided each other like the plague. They didn't work together. They wouldn't walk down the same street next to each other. Wouldn't speak to each other. Certainly would never share the same water bottle. And so while traveling from northern Galilee to southern Judea, Jews would take the long way around just so they didn't have to pass through the middle ground of Samaria. But not Jesus. He takes his disciples right into the heart of enemy territory. At a crossroads where there was a famous well called Jacob's Well that was sacred to both Jews and Samaritans because even though they hated each other, they, they still loved their common ancestor Jacob and considered him to be the father of, of both peoples. Water was so scarce that wells were considered sacred places, safe places where people could go without fear as long as, long as you took turns. It's about 12 noon, the sun is high, Jesus is tired and hungry, sends the disciples off to a nearby town to get some carry-out falafel or something like that, and he's thirsty, so when a woman of Samaria comes to the well to draw water, Jesus says to her, please give me a drink. That's what starts the conversation. And the first thing to notice is that Jesus meets her on common ground. He met her at a neutral place, a place that was safe for both of them. And since the well is 100 feet deep and he's got nothing to drink with, he asks to drink from her cup. And she's shocked. First of all, because he's a male rabbi. A male rabbi like Jesus would never speak to a woman in public outside of his own family members. No decent man would ever talk to this woman in public. But not only that, she's also shocked because Jews and Samaritans just did not speak to each other. Verse 9, she said, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? She's thinking, you've got to be kidding me. You're going to put your Jewish lips on my Samaritan cup? Why, we wouldn't even eat at the same lunch counter. She's totally shocked. Because in her world, her bias would lead her to believe all Jews are hateful. All Jews are rude and not to be trusted. And just by looking at him, he, he knows Jesus is a a Jew, the way he's dressed, his accent, his mannerisms, all these little social clues that set alarms off inside her head. All Jews hate Samaritans. That's what she's saying to Jesus. You and I are different. We cannot connect like this. It's forbidden. I don't know you, but I automatically distrust you. How could you possibly put Jewish lips on my Samaritan cup when you Jews think that we're dirty and unclean? 
The tension in this story is all about racial bias. She continues showing a racial bias in verse 20. She says, our fathers worshipped on this mountain. And you people say that Jerusalem is the only place to worship. You people. That's a terrible phrase. A number of years ago here uh, at church, a Korean family was having a baby baptized in our traditional service in the sanctuary. Many of their family members and friends came to see the ceremony. And I heard the dear older white usher who seated them say, my, there are a lot of you people here today. You people. She never even knew that what she said was offensive. She wasn't conscious of her own bias, but she never would have said that to a Caucasian family. I was mortified, and I apologized as best I could, but the damage was done. The Samaritan woman is quick to point out what she considers to be the reason why she and Jesus cannot connect with each other across a cup of water. We're different. We worship this way. You worship that day. My dad told me that to get close to God, you go to this mountain right here to Gerizim. That's where our temple is, and he got that from his dad and his dad before him. It's part of my history. It's part of my heritage, my background. It's how I was raised. And you people, the reason you do what you do is because that's what your dad told you, because his dad told him. We've got two different histories, two different backgrounds. We're raised on different sides of the track, Jesus, so you stay on your side, and I'll stay on mine. She doesn't know anything about Jesus, but in her mind, She's got him all figured out. That's racial bias. Now, Jesus doesn't go along with any of this. Even everything he does is kind of contrary to her preconceptions. Everything he does takes her by surprise. First of all, he, he treats her with respect. He treats her as just another human being. He doesn't acknowledge the racial differences and the barriers that history and culture have erected. Jesus doesn't play by those rules, and he does not act like what she thinks a Jewish man would act like. He doesn't take the bait, doesn't get into this racially charged or religious confrontation. He doesn't get into a debate with her. Instead, he gives her an invitation in verse 10. If you knew the gift of God and who it was who you were talking to who said, give me this drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. See, when people operate out of their bias, they're operating out of preconceived ideas that are not rooted in God. Whenever you label a whole group of people, whenever you paint a group of people all with the same brush, that's bias. Whenever you think in your mind, all blank are blank, that's bias. Bias rooted in culture or history, family, experience. It's what you think is true, but your information may not be accurate. Your truth may not, in fact, be the truth. You know, our culture has lost this idea that there's anything called the truth, an objective standard by which we can measure reality. We have so individualized truth to your truth and my truth, and everybody has their own truth. That way of thinking actually contributes to racism because it gives people a way to justify what they believe. It's my truth. So who are you to tell me I'm wrong? But as Christians, we believe there is objective truth. It's God's point of view on any subject. So just because you were raised a certain way, once the way that you were raised disagrees with what God says, how you were raised is wrong. When your beliefs go against the kingdom of God and God himself, then it's your ideas that need to change. You can't just say as an excuse, well, that's just me, it's just my background, it's just the way I was raised to believe. And that way, false thinking gets passed on from one generation to another, especially when it comes 
to our deep, even unexpressed racial feelings. Things get passed down. Year after year, decade after decade, ideas become ingrained and we carry unconscious bias against some other group or skin color just because that's the way we were raised. And that's not just between blacks and whites in this country. The centuries-old conflict between Hindus and Muslims in India, the genocide going on in Miramar against the Rohingya people, the treatment of the Kurds and the Yazidi people in Iraq and Syria, Armenians versus Turks, Russians and the Ukrainians, the persecution of the Ugar people in China, bias, prejudice, racism, it's not just an American problem, it's a human problem. And it will always be until we individually place ourselves under the authority of God's word and God's truth and recognize that his truth overrides color, overrides history, overrides race. This doesn't happen automatically, it has to be intentional. And that's why we have to hold a mirror up to ourselves, take an honest look at kind of the pockets of prejudice, the places uh, where we consciously and even unconsciously show racial bias. Dr. David Anderson, a noted author on race relations, coined the phrase, distance demonizes. From a distance, it's easy to demonize people, people who are a different color, a different culture, people who are on the other side of the debate in politics. As long as we stay comfortably apart, we never have to confront our hidden biases that we have at work under the surface. We've got to close the distance, confront our bias, and that's not just an academic exercise. Bias has real-life consequences. I got permission to share this true story. A white police officer was on patrol in a tough neighborhood in Plainfield. Two in the morning when a call came over the radio of an armed robbery with shots fired. The suspect's vehicle was a white or civil, silver Toyota with tinted windows heading south on a certain road. And the officer happened to be heading north on that same road just a couple of blocks away from where the incident took place. So he flipped on his lights and as he approached the next intersection, a white Toyota was coming towards him, turned hard right at the intersection right in front of him without slowing down. So he thought, okay, here we go. His adrenaline was pumping. The chase was on. But to his surprise, the car pulled over as soon as he got behind it. And so as he got out of his car and approached the car that he'd stopped, you know, his hand was on his gun. The car was like bumping with loud rap music. The tinted windows made it so he couldn't see how many people might be inside the car. The officer could kind of feel his heart was racing. The driver's window was down and the cop could see the driver and the young black man was just pounding on his steering wheel, just pounding it and swearing, cursing at the top of his lungs, over the, even louder than the, than the rap music. Every, every expletive you could imagine he was saying about the police, just out of control, beating on the steering wheel. So the police officer's fingering his gun, wondering, okay, what's going to happen? Is this guy armed? Is there a gun in the car? What's going to happen? His heart is just like beating out of his chest. He's a weapons instructor for the police, but he's never had to fire his weapon in the line of duty. He's even a member of the SWAT team, but he's alone with an angry, seemingly out-of-control young black man. He cautiously approaches the driver's door. It's just the driver in the car. He asks him to turn off the music, asks to see his driver's license and registration all the time with his hand on his gun. The young man gives it to him but continues this barrage of expletives against the police officer. You blanking cops are always stopping me, he keeps saying. Over and over again, he's just beside himself. But all the time, the police officer is watching his hands, looking inside the car, seeing if there's a gun, keeping his hand on his pistol just in case there's one false move. 
The police officer was just about to ask the driver to step out of the car when a call came over the radio that other officers had captured the suspect from the robbery. So he kind of let out a sigh of relief, but he still didn't know what was going on and why this guy was so agitated. He looked guilty of, of something. So the officer, officer gave him back his uh, license and registration, still his hand on his gun, kind of stiffly says, sorry, sir, just let you know we had a shots fired call nearby. Your car matched to the description of the suspect vehicle. Have a safe night. Then the officer goes back and gets into the patrol car. Now his adrenaline is still going. It takes a while to kind of settle down after something like that. But then the young black driver, he gets out of the car. And he starts walking back towards the police car. And it's like, uh-oh, what's this? This isn't over. This is not good. The cop puts his hand on his gun again, rolls down his window. The young man comes up, kind of leans down towards the window and says, man, I just have to apologize. I was out of control. I didn't know you were on a gunshot call. But I'm on my way home from work, and I got stopped by a white cop in Cranford, and then I got stopped by a white cop in Scotch Plains, and then I got stopped by you three times in one night just because I'm a young black man driving late at night. I just couldn't take it anymore. So the police officer got out of the car, and standing there in the street without saying anything, the young man just kind of spontaneously put his arms around the cop and hugged him. And the police officer hugged him back. They just needed a moment to be human with each other. You see, there were so many ways that car stop could have gone wrong. Bias from the police officer, assuming the young man was a dangerous criminal, that he was facing a life-threatening situation. Bias from the young driver, assuming he got pulled over by just another racist white cop for driving while black and then venting all his pent-up anger. Bias believing all young men are suspects, young black men are suspects. Bias believing all cops are out to get me. Both had bias at work in their thinking, and boy, could that have ended badly. When in reality, they just needed a moment to be human with each other. You see, Jesus closed the distance with that Samaritan woman. He found a safe place to meet with her, and he flipped the script on her because her racial bias was blocking the flow of God's grace into her heart. Jesus made her look at herself and her life in a new way. Can you be brave enough to let Jesus do that in your life? Can you be brave enough to examine your own heart and root out all the little places where bias separates you from the grace of God, where bias separates you from other people, where bias blocks the flow of God's grace in your life? Let Jesus lead you to that place where living water can flow because you trust in him. Let's pray. Lord, we need your grace in order to honestly confront our own internal world of bias. Many of us are going to make excuses for why we think this way or that way, find justifications for these little pockets of prejudice that we have, Lord. Help us not to settle for that. Help us not to be drawn away by the distractions of our world and all the excuses that are out there, but to say we want to be people who are true to Jesus. And so we want our hearts to be open before you, Lord. Reveal yourself to us so that in our inner being, your living water can flow. We ask this in your name. Amen.